Okay, so we're continuing our reading of Simon Zhang's uh, individuation in the light of notions of form and information. We're still on um, chapter two of part one. Uh, we're on physical individuation, and we're just finishing the uh, um, section two of that chapter, and we're going to start section three today as well. So we've been looking at uh, electromagnetic radiation in the last um, section, or the last uh, subsection that we were reading um, about the way that um, these different portions of the electromagnetic spectrum actually overlap. And so there is no, there's no use for the concept of genus and species in understanding the different types of electromagnetic radiation. Um, it's a, a transductive mode of thinking, uh, is how Simon Doan describes it, rather than um, a mode of thinking through uh, induction or deduction. But as we get to the next section, we'll see that there, there is a place for induction and deduction in the, the mode of thinking that Simon Doan is describing here, but um, transduction takes the place of a, a synthesis of those two, but we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. Um, so let's finish off this subsection here. I'll start reading. It would be easy to complete this analysis by showing how the same application of transductive reasoning allowed us to unify the entire domain of electromagnetic radiations by establishing experimental continuities between the other domains following a complete concatenation. Schumann, Lyman, and then Millikan established the continuity between the visible spectrum and X-rays from 0.4 to 0.0438 thousandths of a millimeter, or from 4,000 to 438 angstroms. In this manner, we began to understand the intermediate X-rays, since they are too long to be diffracted by natural networks like crystals, whose elementary lattice normally measures only several angstroms. Finally, the domains of X-rays and gamma rays were found in a state of continuity and a quite important overlap since polonium gamma rays have a wavelength of 2.5 angstroms, which identifies them with ordinary weak X-rays. They constitute the same physical reality, and if a particular name is kept for them, this is only to relay their mode of production, but they could just as correctly be called X-rays. The general chart of electromagnetic radiation, such as the one created by Louis de Breuil, extends from 10 to the minus 3 angstroms to 3 by 10 to the 14 angstroms, i.e. from 10 to the minus 10 millimeters to around 30,000 meters. Without any solution of continuity, it is possible to pass through from the most penetrating gamma rays to the longest waves of wireless telegraphy. The knowledge of the unity and diversity of this phenomenon, which is thoroughly spread out on a numerical scale, is one of the most noteworthy successes of this transductive method, which is the foundation for progress in physics. Moreover, this immense monument of logic is also strictly coincident with the real, including in the most refined techniques. MIT's electromagnetic thermometer, which receives like a radioelectric receiver of extremely short waves, electromagnetic perturbations emitted by the stars, has made it possible to measure the temperatures of the sun, 10,000 degrees Kelvin, of the moon, 292 degrees Kelvin, and of outer space, less than 10 degrees Kelvin. The radioelectric theodolite allows us to map out the position of the sun under cloudy conditions. Radar, which is 10 to 20 times more sensitive than the eye, can detect uh, the passage of invisible meteorites with the instruments of optics. Nevertheless, we should ask if this intellectual edifice, as a condition of stability, does not require an absolute transductivity of all properties and all terms. Without this perfect coherence, the notion of genus would reappear in all its latent obscurity. A notion cannot be created to account for one phenomenon, for example, relative to a determined frequency, and then abandoned for other frequencies. Within a domain of transductivity, there must be a con continuity between all properties with variations relative only to the variation of the physical parameters, 
that make the organization of transductivity possible. In the case of the domain of electromagnetic radiations, the reality of the photon cannot be accepted for a determined band of frequency and then abandoned for other frequencies. However, the notion of the photon, this quantum of energy that propagates at the speed of light, is remarkably useful when the photoelectric effect must be interpreted, but it is no longer as interesting when it is a question of infrared or Hertzian waves. It should nevertheless be usable in this domain of large wavelengths. So this is the bit where he gives us finally the, uh, the argument against the notion of the photon. So the, the photon notion was introduced in connection with the photoelectric effect, um, which uh, if you recall is the effect where a light beam illuminating a piece of metal will cause the metal to emit electrons and there are certain properties of, of this emission that suggest that light is acting in the way, in the form of um, a corpuscular, in a corpuscular form or in a discrete manner. So it, it's an all or nothing effect. And so this is where the notion of the photon was introduced as a, a unit of light uh, or a particle of light. And uh, what Simon Dole argues here is that if this notion, uh, if the electromagnetic spectrum is is a continuum in the way that it uh, in the way that he's depicted it here, then the notion of photons should be usable uh, across all the, the electromagnetic spectrum. But in fact, we find its utility uh, is limited to particular domains like the photoelectric effect, um, and it, it's less useful when you, you start talking about um, infrared radiation or uh, radio waves uh, with longer wavelengths. So, so that's the, the general argument against the use of the photon notion. So if, if it's valid, it should apply to all wavelengths, but we find uh, in fact that it's, um, it's not useful in, in certain wavelengths. Uh, so that shows that it's not uh, universally valid. Section two, particle and energy, subsection one, substantialism and energeticism. The impossibility of directly and exclusively positing the corpuscular nature of light was admirably posited by Louis de Broglie in the theory of wave mechanics, a theory which was eventually completed by Bohr with the notion of complementarity between the wave aspect and the corpuscle aspect. We would like to show that this manner of conceiving the physical individual can be integrated quite well into the general theory of the individual as a being that is genetically constituted by a relation between an energetic condition and a structural condition that extend their existence in, in the individual, which can at any moment behave as a germ of structuration or as an energetic continuum. Its relation is different depending on whether it enters into relation with a milieu that is equivalent to a continuum, continuum or whether it enters into relation with an already structured milieu. The principle of complementarity, which indicates that the physical individual is physical individual Sometimes behaves as a wave and sometimes as a corpuscle, but not in both ways simultaneously in the same phenomenon, would be interpreted in the doctrine we are presenting as the result of the asymmetry of every relation. The individual can sometimes play one role and sometimes the other of two possible roles in relation, but not both at the same time. We shall therefore suppose that when a physical individual behaves as a corpuscle, the being with which it is in relation behaves as a wave, and when it behaves as a wave, the being with which it is in relation behaves as a corpuscle. 
More generally, in every relation, there would always be a continuous term and a discontinuous term. This requires that each being integrate a continuous condition and a discontinuous condition into itself. I'll just read this next paragraph. Uh, the substantialism of the particle and the energeticism of the wave developed quite independently from one another during the 19th century because in the beginning they corresponded to the domains of to domains of research distant enough from one another to authorize the theoretical independence of the principles of explanation. The historical conditions for the, dis the discovery of wave mechanics are extremely important for an allegmatic epistemology whose goal is to study the modalities of transductive thought as truly adequate for the knowledge of the development of a scientific thought that wants to know the individuation of the real it studies. This epistemological study of the formation of wave mechanics and Bohr's complementarity would like to show, to the extent that it is a question of thinking the problem of the physical individual, that pure deductive thought and pure inductive thought have been rendered ineffective, and that from the introduction of the quantum of action up to Bohr's principle of complementarity, only a transductive logic has uh, made the development of the physical sciences possible. Yeah, so this notion of uh, complementarity is uh, the key idea of this um, section. Um, and so this is, um, well, we'll see more of the development of this notion uh, throughout the section, but the general idea, um, as, as Simone expresses it here, is that um, there are certain phenomena uh, that in uh, quantum mechanics we have to um, we have to consider uh, as having the properties of both a wave and a particle. So light um, behaves in some instances like uh, a particle, and in some instances like a wave, uh, depending on what type of experimental setup you have and um, what type of operation is is, is going on. Um, and so this. Uh, sort of reproduces um, this duality of the two uh, theories of light that um, that it were prevalent before quantum mechanics was developed at the beginning of the 20th century. So there were particle or corpuscular theories of light. Uh, Newton, for example, was a, a proponent of, of a, a corpuscular theory of light. Uh, and then there were wave theories of light, which um, sort of became dominant in, in the 19th century. It was only at the beginning of the 20th century that um, the two were sort of joined together to um, form this notion of complementarity so that both aspects are, are um, aspects of light as a phenomenon. And so what Simon Dong is going to argue here is that, um, uh, well, he's going to develop the, the history, uh, sort of a, a summarized history of, of these two strands, the uh, corpuscular strand and the um, wave strand uh, of uh, the theory of light. Uh, and then he's going to argue that the, the only way to understand their, um, their complementarity is to uh, use a, a transductive mode of thinking. So the, the corpuscular theory is, corresponds to a, an inductive thinking and the wave theory corresponds to a deductive thinking, but to, to join them together, we need transductive thinking. But uh, we'll see that as, as we progress through this uh, section. Okay, I think we can go ahead to read the next uh, couple of the paragraphs, if someone else would like to read. I actually had some uh, questions about this section. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I guess maybe a statement or a question. What I find interesting here is that he's 
telling us more about uh, what he means by the relation, which has come up before, right, multiple times. And it's, it's always kind of, I mean, to me at least, kind of mysterious, you know, what is, what is this relation that he's talking about? And here he says, more generally, in every relation, there would always be a continuous term and a discontinuous term. And so that, that I think, I mean, to my mind, clarifies things. And what I'm curious about is how this behavior changes. You know, so on the, a little bit earlier, uh, I don't have page numbers here, but it's actually the first, just the first paragraph towards the beginning. He says, um, so that any physical individual can at any moment behave as a germ of structuration or as an energetic continuum. And its relation is different depending on whether it enters into relation with a milieu that is equivalent to a continuum or whether it enters into relation with an already structured milieu. And that part I'm trying to wrap my head around. Uh, so I think we've already seen examples of how a physical individual became, be, behaves as a germ, right? It enters into, you know, like you throw the germ in the supersaturated solution. I guess that's an example where the solution is kind of like a continuum and the crystal you throw in is a germ uh, and it's behaving like a substance. And it's kind of, and it starts up this process of, uh, you know, of individuation. And I guess what I'm uh, trying to understand is how does it work the other way around? How does it work when a physical individual behaves as a continuum, whereas the milieu is structured? Because yeah, uh, that seems to invert things, right? And I, yeah. I guess what's coming to mind is something like um, an individual is structured by their environment, right? Or something like maybe upbringing, you know? But, but yeah, uh, sorry, sorry to cut you off there. No, oh, no. I was just going to say, I think for me, one of the clearest examples of this that he's given is the allotropes of sulfur crystals, where one of the allotropes, uh, one of these crystal formations of sulfur um, can, even after it's already crystallized, if it encounters a structural germ of a different allotrope, can be kind of restructured um, into this second allotrope of, of sulfur. So in that sense, it would be something that's already individuated, that's acting as a continuum, that is then structured by a structural germ. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I guess the reason that's possible is that things kind of retain some pre-individuality in them, right? Nothing is ever fully finished. Like, things always have that a kind of continuum aspect to them, I guess. Yeah, in one of the one of the allotropes, I think, is more stable than the other. So one of the the allotrope that can turn into the other one is metastable with relation to that second allotrope. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, there's always in, in any individual um, the individuation process is never fully complete, so that um, there would be no potential is left for further transformation. Um, so there's always um, something that, that, that is an individual can always uh, undergo further transformations. And um, in that sense, it can act as a, a continuum in which a, a further process of individuation occurs. Um, so I think that's 
what he has in mind here when he talks about this uh, this sort of reverse case of uh, uh, the individual playing the role of the continuum. And I think, uh, Al James, I think you're right about um, drawing attention to uh, the the notion of the relation here, because um, as we've seen, he he um, puts a lot of emphasis on this notion of the relation and how relation has the status of being. Um, and then he distinguishes relation in that sense in, in his sort of restricted technical sense from uh, just a, a rapport um, uh, as, a, as something like an external relation. Um, and so here we get a more detailed or, or more precise formulation of what exactly it, are the criteria for something to be a relation in the true sense, in the sense that has the status of being. Um, and so uh, this true sense of relation has to do with um, the relationship or the, the connection between um, a continuous term and a discontinuous term um, that, that integrates the two together. Um, and, uh, and so the crystallization example is, uh, is sort of the paradigm that he uses for um, relations as a whole. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next uh, couple of paragraphs if someone else would like to read. Uh, I can read again. In this sense, we are going to show that the quote-unquote synthesis of the complementary notions of wave and corpuscle is not, in fact, a pure logical synthesis, but the epistemological encounter of a notion obtained through induction and a notion obtained through deduction. The two notions are not truly synthesized like those of thesis and antithesis at the end of a dialectical movement, but instead are put into relation due to a transductive movement of thought. They can serve their own functional characteristic in this relation. In order for them to be able to be synthesized, they would need to be symmetrical and homogeneous. In dialectics with a ternary rhythm, the synthesis is the synthesis more or less envelops the thesis and antithesis by overcoming contradiction. The synthesis is therefore hierarchically, logically, and ontologically superior to the terms it joins together. Conversely, the relation obtained at the end of a rigorous transduction maintains the characteristic asymmetry of the terms. This is due to the fact that scientific thought relative to the at first physical then biological individual, as we are attempting to show, cannot proceed according to the ternary rhythm of dialectics where the synthesis is the thesis of a higher triad. Scientific thought advances not through the elevation of successive planes according to a ternary rhythm but through the extension of transductivity. Due to the principle of complementarity, relation having become functionally symmetrical uh, cannot, with respect to another term, present an asymmetry that can be the motor for a further dialectical progression. In terms of reflective thought after the exercise of transductive thought, uh, contradiction has become internal to the result of synthesis, since it is relation to the extent that it is asymmetrical. Therefore, oh, sorry, there cannot be a new contradiction between the result of this synthesis and another term that would be its antithesis. In transductive thought, there is no result of synthesis, but merely a complementary synthetic relation. Synthesis is not effectuated. It is never achieved. 
there's no synthetic rhythm because insofar as the operation of synthesis is never effectuated, it cannot become a new thesis. Um, according to the epistemological thesis we are defending, the relation between uh, the different domains of thought is horizontal. It allows for transduction, i.e. not identification or hierarchization, but a continuous distribution according to an indefinite scale. So is this related to his idea that the, the individual um, is kind of a, a frozen relation um, or an arrested process of ongoing relation rather than something that I guess would subsume the, the, um, the two systems that it um, causes to correspond? Right, I think um, I think this has to do with what we had just discussed a little while ago about um, how an individual is never uh, is never a completed process of individuation, or is never some, something like a result of a of a process that is uh, finished. Um, so that um, we can't have we can't have something like a. Uh, uh, a synthesis that would be um, a completed term and then would would serve as the um, thesis of a, a new set of uh, a new dialectical triad um, uh, so I think that's um, what he has in mind here so there, the synthesis is never um, effectuated means that it's never uh, completed or um, it doesn't result in something separate from the the terms themselves Yeah, so uh, can we say that the, the synthesis is imminent to the terms? Um, I think so. Um, I mean, the term imminent is not one that I think Simondon really uses, um, by contrast with uh, Deleuze or someone uh, like that. But um, I think um, because he, uh, because Simondon, um, wants to grant the status of being to relation in his uh, specific technical sense of the, of the term relation. Um, so if relation has the status of being, uh, that means it, it constitutes the being of the terms that are related to each other. Um, so in that sense, it would be imminent to those beings uh, rather than transcendent. So yeah, I think that makes sense. And uh, sort of as an aside, I would also say that this uh, depiction of dialectics is um, uh, not exactly a, a uh, accurate depiction of the way Hegel presents uh, the dialectical process. Um, so this this idea of the the triad of uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis is not is not how Hegel presents anything in in the, the science of logic, for example. Um, but, uh, and, and I'm not sure exactly um, where this um, uh, sort of picture of, uh, of the dialectical process comes from. Um, I'm not sure how that sort of came to be associated with Hegel, um, but you do see that uh, pretty regularly, but it, it's, not, um, it's not in Hegel himself. So he's, uh, so Simon Do is, is sort of um, setting up a bit of a, a straw man. Um, Yes, you do find it in, in Fichte, um, the, the thesis, antithesis, synthesis, schema, um, um, but uh, yeah, not, not specifically in, in Hegel. Um, 
but yeah, it, it's uh, an interesting question where that, um, how that picture came to be associated with Hegel. I'm not sure. Yeah, one way to, um, I mean, I'm trying to think about this. Uh, so I'm not sure about the synthesis, thesis, antithesis part. Um, I think Hegel uses those terms like separately. But yeah, I think it's someone else who really talks, you know, kind of comes up with that formula. And uh, uh, I think the thesis and thesis structure is actually in Kant. Um, and I think Marx has this like try, you know, this kind of, uh, kind of, I guess it's kind of simplistic, you know, uh, formula. But uh, what's coming to my mind is uh, the idea of Aufhebung in Hegel. Uh, what does the sublate what's translated as the sublation often in English it has the meanings of canceling something but also preserving it and also elevating it and those three meanings are supposed to be contained in this what a synthesis is or you know how the dialectics works there's so there's a negation there is a preservation and then there is an elevation into something higher and it's interesting that, uh, so I'm wondering uh, when it comes to uh, Simondon, uh, how far he's traveling on that train, if at all. Um, and so to me, it seems at least two of those aspects are definitely excluded, right? The, the negation aspect, it doesn't seem like anything is canceled for Simondon. We don't have negation, right? Uh, instead, we have this kind of propagation of of a kind of, um, of a, I don't know, of a, of a structure or of a, um, of a, of a structuration. And the other thing we don't have is the hierarchy, the lifting up, right? That kind of Christian, quasi-Christian, you know, something is elevated into a higher domain of being. We don't have that. We have a kind of horizontality. Mm. And I guess I wonder whether um, maybe the preserving aspect is there in Simondon to some extent, you know, like this kind of pre-individual that, that is preserved even as structure kind of spreads or propagates. Um, but even then it seems like it may be pushing it. Um, I'm not sure, but at least those two things definitely, uh, you know, like, it's it's a point of uh, definitely point of disagreement. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, I think I think you're right, uh, or your suggestion that um, um, that moment of preservation is something that that we do find in Simondon. Um, I think that's correct. Um, so I'm I'm thinking back to the introduction. Um, where he um, he brings up the notion of uh, um, binocular vision and um, the invention of a of a third dimension of depth um, as uh, preserving the two retinal images, the differences of between the two retinal images, um, and why so why that's different than uh, something like a um, a synthesis uh, is because it uh, it preserves the difference between the the two images. Um, Rather than uh, somehow reconciling the two images and and grasping what's common to them or something like that, um, 
and uh, and so I think I think he what he wants um, this mode of thinking to be able to do is precisely to preserve those uh, the differences between the terms uh, rather than to sort of reconcile them or overcome the difference between them uh, in the way that he's uh, depicting the dialectical process. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think in, in Hegel, uh, things like difference and mm, contingency or, uh, mm, you know, the, uh, the things that don't fit in the concept, they kind of end up falling, falling away. You know, and it seems like here, and you know, I guess it's it may even be connected to that thing about. Uh, it seems like for for in this in the dialectic, the concept needs to be like as it grows in in um, in extension, it can only it can contain fewer and fewer marks or fewer and fewer like the the comprehension of the concept needs to shrink and it, and and if if transduction is to do the opposite i guess that's exactly it needs to take in and preserve differences a kind of ever growing collection of differences or you know uh and that can explain how we can comprehend more and have this greater extension of uh of things that 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 come under it. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, this is, I think we were talking last time about that, right? That logical principle. Right, yeah. So he, he um, when he distinguishes transductive thinking from inductive thinking, that's that's what he points to as, as being um, the characteristic property of uh, inductive thinking is uh, precisely that um, inverse relationship between comprehension and extension so that uh, the, the greater the extension of a concept, the more um, entities that fall under it, the uh, less its comprehension. So the, the fewer um, marks or, or characteristics it attributes to each entity that falls under it. Um, and then and conversely, so a, a greater comprehension means a, a lesser extension of the concept. Um, and so that's that's what's characteristic of inductive thinking uh, for for Simon Dong. Um, uh, the the only point I would maybe disagree with or or want to uh, clarify is I don't think that um, transductive thinking is supposed to be sort of the reverse of that. Um, um, I think it's more that it's just that we don't have that um, that inverse relationship anymore. So there's there's no um, strict relationship between uh, the extension and comprehension of concepts in the way that there is in inductive thinking. Um, uh, it's not that the, the relationship will be the reverse of what it was in inductive thinking. But yeah, we'll see, we'll see um, more of the relationship between these three modes of thinking. So inductive, deductive, and transductive. We'll see that, see that um, throughout this, um, this section and uh, especially towards the end, um, how that um, transductive unification that is not uh, a synthesis, uh, how that happens. Um, so let's, let's uh, continue with the, the last paragraph of the uh, subsection. So I can read that, uh, just a second. 
The principles that we are going to try to elicit from epistemological examination will therefore have to be considered as valid if they are transductible to other domains like that of technical objects and living beings. Ethics, ethics itself will have, to, will have to seem like a study of relation proper to living beings. Here we, we are using the expression proper to living beings, whereas in reality there is no rigorous direct relation to living beings. To be more precise, it would be better to say commensurate with living beings in order to indicate that these characteristics, without them being proper to living beings, appear much more significantly in the latter than in any other being given that they correspond to variables whose values or systems of values pass through a maximum for these beings. Certainly, in a perfect doctrine, the problems relative to the frontiers between the kingdoms of nature, and therefore between species, are much less important than in a theory that uses the notions of genus and species. Indeed, sometimes we can conceive of a continuous transition between two domains that could only be separated by the sufficiently arbitrary choice of average parameters. And sometimes we can conceive of thresholds like the threshold of frequency of the photoelectric effect that manifests not a distinction between two species, but simply a quantum condition of the production of a determined effect. The limit is no longer endowed with singular and mysterious properties. It is quantifiable and merely constitutes a critical point whose determination remains perfectly imminent to the phenomenon studied and to the group of beings analyzed. Yeah, there are there is definitely um, uh, sort of Deleuzean resonances of uh, a lot of um, the material in, in this uh, in this book, and um, uh, Deleuze definitely builds on Simondon a lot more than um, I mean he does he does cite Simondon um, on occasion, but I think there's a lot more um, uh, that's borrowed from Simondon, um, even where he's not explicitly citing him. Um, and, and so here, right, that, that could be uh, an instance of that, um, the notion of the critical points. Um, and uh, um, yeah, that, that's uh, a key notion in, in difference in repetition. There's one um, little point of uh, translation that uh, sort of a weird mistake here. Um, so where in the English it says, certainly in a perfect doctrine, uh, in French, it says, um, certainly in such a doctrine, uh, there, there's no perfect there. Um, so if you're wondering what that perfect doctrine is, you don't need to wonder because it's not in the, the French. Okay, so let's go on to the next subsection. Um, if someone else would like to read the first, uh, maybe three paragraphs. True, uh, the deductive process. This is the thesis that we are going to try to demonstrate, or at least illustrate, through the analysis of the conditions under which physical science has been led to define the physical individual as a complementary association of the wave and the corpuscle. The notion of wave seems to have appeared at the end of a remarkable deductive effort, particularly concerning the elucidation of energetic problems to which it contributes a remarkably rational means of calculation. It extends and renews the tradition of a deductive physics, one that since Descartes has resorted to the classical representations of analytical geometry. Furthermore, it is linked at least historically to the study of macroscopic phenomena. Finally, it has an eminent theoretical role that allows us to think, under common principles, extremely vast sets of facts that were previously separated into distinct categories. 
Conversely, the notion of corpuscle presents the opposite characteristics. The notion of waves has approximately played identical roles in the interpretation of luminous phenomena and phenomena relative to the displacements of electrical particles or electric charges. The latter is what allowed Maxwell to hatch the electromagnetic theory of light. The first work solidified around the studies of Fresnel. The second solidified around Maxwell's discovery, which was later experimentally verified by Hertz. Beginning his study of phenomena of diffraction in 1814, Fresnel inherited at least two centuries of experimental and theoretical research. Uh, Huygens had this already studied the phenomenon of the double refraction of spar discovered by Bartholin. And he also knew that quartz possesses the same property of birefringence or birefraction. Huygens had already expounded rational methods and a theory accompanied by geometrical constructions that have remained in esteem. He had observed phenomena of polarization. This thinker of astronomy and geometry brought a theoretician's mind to the problems of physics, which is particularly apparent in his Cosmotheoros and his Dioptrique. He put forth the idea that light is constituted not by corpuscles in movement, but by waves propagating through space. However, this theory was not as satisfying for Huygens as the solution he gave to the problem of the catenary curve or the tautochrone curve. It could not explain the phenomenon of the propagation of light rays in a straight line. The problem posed by nature was more difficult to solve than those proposed by Galileo and Leibniz. Descartes' work in its statement of the laws of propagation always manifested the interest of a corpuscular optics in the explanation of the propagation of light rays in a straight line. However, Huygens' theory could not be abandoned, for Newton himself, even though he was partisan to the corpuscular theory after having discovered a new phenomenon, interferences, was forced to complete the corpuscular theory with a theory of access. Light corpuscles would pass periodically when they cross material milieus through the access of unimpeded reflection and unimpeded transmission, which would allow for the explanation of colored rings. Let us furthermore note that the hypothesis according to which light would convey periodic elements, even if it were corpuscular in nature, was already explained in Descartes' work. The dioptrique explains that the prism disperses white polychromatic light because each corpuscle of light increasingly deviates as its movement of rotation around itself becomes less rapid. This idea of the rotation of light corpuscles, which stems from the cosmological hypothesis of primordial vortices, leads Descartes into an error for it forces him to attribute to the vortices of subtle matter constitutive of red light a frequency of rotation higher than that of violet light corpuscles. According to Descartes, this would be due to the fact that the corpuscles of which 
red light is composed would be vortices of subtle matter that have a diameter less than that of the corpuscles of which violet light is composed. Despite the error relative to the compared frequencies of red and violet, Descartes had the merit of unifying two asymmetrical notions in a very fruitful association. Yeah, so this is the historical bit about the deductive process. So the, um, the uh, thinking that leads to the wave theory of light. Um, so this theory is uh, sort of founded by Huygens uh, in the 17th century. It, yeah, so it, it, it's founded on um, earlier theories of, uh, of geometrical optics, um, which I think were, were known in ancient Greek times and, and definitely in um, the medieval Arab world, there was a, a geometrical optics, um, uh, which is then taken up again in Europe. Um, and, uh, and so the, the uh, wave theory of light is um, supposed to account for some of the, these phenomena um, observed in geometrical optics, but then also these, um, these other phenomena like uh, the double refract or birefraction um, and uh, diffraction and, and some of these uh, less obvious phenomena are supposed to be explained through the, the wave theory of light. Um, and so in the, the sort of general picture of explanation is that these phenomena arise from the interference of uh, light waves with each other. Um, in the same way that water waves, uh, waves in the surface of water will uh, interfere with each other if they come into contact. Uh, and so that's the, the sort of general picture of how we explain these phenomena. Uh, and then so by contrast, um, the corpuscular theory of light, um, the corpuscular theory uh, gives um, a, an explanation of the straight line um, nature of light rays, uh, but it has more difficulty than, it has more difficulty in explaining some of these phenomena like inter interference and, and uh, refraction. And then so Newton, for example, um, is a, a, a proponent of the corpuscular theory, um, but then he has to add on to this notion of, of light corpuscles, he has to give them um, what what he calls fits of, uh, of easy, uh, reflection and uh, and easy transmission. Um, uh, so here there's a, a, a sort of a translation or like a double translation issue because uh, in French a fit is accès uh, and then here it, it's retranslated back into English as access, but the, the, word, the word that Newton uses is fits. So uh, a fit of easy transmission and then a fit of easy reflection. Uh, so there, there would be this sort of alternation in the corpuscles of light. Um, and uh, and that would explain some of these phenomena like uh, birefraction and so on. And then the other the other phenomenon that um, the corpuscular theory of light does uh, explain well is the uh, refraction of light in a prism. So the idea is that white light consists of um, many different colors of light that are uh, um, that the prism is able to sort of filter or or separate out. Um, and, uh, and that's something that is uh, sort of straightforward to account for under the corpuscular theory, but is um, a little more 
difficult to account for under a wave theory of light. Uh, and then he brings up uh, Descartes' theory of light, which is sort of corpuscular theory, except that for Descartes, there's no uh, there's no void, so there's nothing like uh, a particle in the proper sense of the word. Um, there are these tiny um, vortices of subtle matter uh, that um, uh, that make up light. Uh, so they they're sort of quasi corpuscles. They're they're not exactly um, corpuscles or particles um, because there's no void in in his system. Um, but um, what what uh, Descartes uh, leads to, or or he he ends up with with this error um, of making the red light have a higher frequency than um, the uh, violet light. Um, so that the frequency here is determined by the speed of rotation of the vortices, and uh, and so he makes red have a higher frequency than um, than violet, whereas uh, it's actually the reverse. Uh, red is a, a lower frequency or a longer wavelength um, than uh, violet light. But uh, Simon Dahl says, you know, despite this error, um, it was still um, a, a fruitful uh, suggestion to to try to tie these notions together. Um, even though Descartes did it sort of the wrong way around. Okay, so let's go on to the next page or so of this uh, long paragraph, um, and I can read again. Moreover, it would be false to suppose that Descartes represented light exactly as composed of corpuscles. There is no vacuum in his system, and consequently there is neither atoms nor corpuscles, properly speaking. There are only vortices of race extensa in movement. Based with this confrontation of two traditions, Fresnel steered his researches in such a way as to extend the field of application of a theory that since Huygens had served merely to explain a handful of phenomena, namely wave theory. Double refraction was known only for two crystalline species. Fresnel examined if this property was encountered in other crystals. After creating experimental apparatuses for shedding light on double refraction in all the crystals in which it could exist, he observed that it existed in almost all crystals and he explained it by the unequal composition that their linear elements should, present, uh, should present taken in various directions, which conforms with Aluri's theory about crystalline networks. Afterwards, Fresnel extended this theoretical explanation to cases where an amorphous body is polarized by an external cause. He discovered that a glass prism becomes birefringent when it is compressed. This extension of the scientific object, i.e. of a theory's domain of, of validity, perfectly illustrates what can be called the transductive method. Moreover, in collaboration with Arago, Fresnel studied the polarization of light. Arago discovered chromatic polarization. Fresnel completed this discovery with the discovery of circular polarization, which is produced by means of a suitably cut birefringent crystal. However, it would be impossible to explain this phenomenon of polarization if we invoked a representation that assimilates the light wave to a sound wave propagating in a, in a gas. Fresnel supposed that the vibrations in light waves are transversal, i.e. occur perpendicularly to the direction of propagation. Propagation and double refraction are both explained with this insight. Fresnel had already demonstrated that the hypothesis of waves, just as much as the theory of corpuscles, allows us to explain the phenomenon of the rectilinear propagation of light rays. The result of the works of Malus and Arago uh, the results of the works of Malus and Arago managed to confirm this theory. Malus discovered that reflected light is always partially polarized and the simple refraction through glass also partly partially polarized light. 
This discovery can be found in the treatise entitled Sur une propriété de la lumière réfléchie par les corps diaphanes. Frenet's theory was verified and its experimental basis received confirmation when they were expanded upon through the works of Arago, who constructed a photometer allowing for experimental confirmation of the principle deductively discovered by Frenet, complementarity of reflected light and refracted light. After constructing the polariscope, Arago was able to control all the characteristics of chromatic polarization in a very precise fashion. Hence, we see how Huygens' thought becomes largely justified in his treatise on light, Traité de la Lumière, from 1690. In true philosophy, the cause of all natural effects are conceived via reasons of mechanics. This is what must be done, in my opinion, or we must give up all hope of ever understanding anything in physics. Um, so we have... Uh, again, continuing this history into the 19th century with Crenel. With um, and um, he sort of um, re, uh, re-establishes the uh, wave theory of light by developing the notion of light as a transversal wave rather than a longitudinal wave, so that uh, light, um, the wave uh, in light is, is propagated uh, not uh, parallel to the the ray of light, but um, perpendicular to it instead. Um, so whereas a a water wave um, um, prop or a sound wave uh, in the air, um, it the the wave um, is is um, is parallel to the direction of propagation of the uh, of the wave um, in light. It's the uh, the light beam. Uh, is perpendicular to the propagation of the wave. Um, so th- that's what makes it transversal. Um, and this uh, new notion of a transversal wave uh, is what um, is what Fresnel proposes to account for uh, circular polarization, um, which uh, is, is this phenomenon that occurs when, when um, these crystals are, are uh, cut in a particular way. Okay, so let's go on to the next bit, if someone else would like to read. Um, I can read, but I don't know. I might just not read the equations themselves and just read their names. If that works for everyone, I can't read sure. them. Furthermore, Maxwell secured a new step for deductive rationalism founded on the hypothesis of the continuous and corresponding to an energetic preoccupation. To be able to explain the principle of the conservation of energy in the unitary system formed by the unification of the different laws that were discovered separately in the domains of electricity, Maxwell formed the notion of displacement currents, which is perhaps uh, poorly named, but which is the forerunner of the current notion of electromagnetic waves and is extensively unifying for the physical reality called light. Before the communication of Maxwell's great treatise on electromagnetic theory, four laws gathered together all the previous discoveries relative to quote-unquote static and quote-unquote dynamic electricity, magnetism, and the relation between fields and currents. Maxwell substituted the following system for the four laws uh, that would express these results. And then we have a definition of these terms capital B is magnetic induction, lowercase b is electric induction, capital H is magnetic field, H is electric field, I is current density, 
uh, I think that's rho is charge density, then we can write the equations for the following. Faraday's law of induction is the first one. The second is the inexistence of the isolated magnetic poles. The third is Ampere's theorem on the relations between magnetic Magnetic, field, magnetic fields and currents. And fourth is the law of electrostatic actions, or uh, Gauss's theorem. The third equation expresses Ampere's theorem on the relations between currents and magnetic fields. But to be able to write, to be able to write that, there is conservation of energy. Here, conservation of electricity. Maxwell... Oh, sorry. But to be able to write that there is conservation of energy, here conservation of electricity, Maxwell completed this theorem with the introduction of the displacement current, which is represented by the expression 1 delta lowercase b over c times delta t, and uh, which is added to the conduction current I then we can deduce from these equations delta rho over delta t plus, I don't know how to say that, inverted delta 1 equals 0, which expresses the conservation of electricity. This, this expression of conservation would be impossible without the term in uh, delta b over delta t. Um, another extremely important theoretical consequence of this equation system is that when magnetic induction can be conflated with the magnetic field and electrical induction can be conflated with the electrical field, which is the case of the vacuum, the electromagnetic fields always propagate at the speed of light, speed C. This expression, which measures the rapport of the electromagnetic charge unit to the electrostatic charge unit of the electric charge when magnetic fields and inductions are expressed in electromagnetic units, whereas electric, electrical fields and inductions, charges, and currents are expressed in electrostatic units, has a finite value. It allows for the theoretical calculation of the speed of light in vacuum. This propagation can be analyzed as resulting from the propagation of a set of flat monochromatic waves. Okay, so there's a lot of um, physical detail in this bit, but I think it's not super important to um, sort of grasp all of the uh, the meaning of each of these equations. Um, the, the basic idea to grasp here is that um, Maxwell is capable, uh, by positing these four laws, he's able to um, account for basically everything um, about electromagnetic radiation um, that was known uh, at the time, or, or sorry, more, more precisely, he's able to unify the theory of light with the theory of electromagnetism and account for basically all the phenomena that were known um, at that time uh, under these four laws. So it's, um, um, uh, it's a moment of deductive thought because it's, um, it subsumes all these different phenomena under these four general laws. Uh, so that, I think that's the, the sort of basic um, uh, idea to grasp from that passage.
and then the uh, one of the consequences, the important consequence of this um, unification is that it allows for um, theoretical deduction of the speed of light so that you can sort of plug in the, uh, the values for some of these um, uh, um, electrical um, and magnetic charges and then you do all the calculations and you can arrive at a, a, a speed of light. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure if it had been done numerically in the 19th century when, when this was proposed, but um, um, the idea would be that you would produce this theoretical um, uh, or, or deductive um, uh, estimate of the speed of light, and then you would compare that to empirical measurements of the speed of light, and hopefully they should line up uh, and, and uh, give the same results. But of course, um, empirical measurements of the speed of light are a little bit complicated compared to measuring the speed of a, a, I don't know, a car or a plane or something like that, just because um, the speed of light is, is the, the fastest anything can go. So you can't measure it by some other movement in the way that you can uh, with uh, um, sub, uh, uh, sub light speed um, movement. Okay, so let's go on to the next bit of uh, the next maybe two paragraphs. Uh, if someone else would like to read. Uh, this second, this part is cool with all the, the colors and the Homeric writings. <clears throat> this is when the second stage of the transductive methods fruitful application appeared. Maxwell, in fact, noted the real analogy, i.e. the identity of rapport between the propagation of light in a vacuum and the propagation of electromagnetic fields. He then supposed that light is constituted by perturbations of, elect of an electromagnetic nature and corresponds only to a certain interval of wavelengths, that of the visible spectrum of electromagnetic vibrations. The constant C, which was discovered based on considerations contemplating the conservation of energy and electricity is transduct transductible into the measure of speed of light in a vacuum, just as the speed of light in vacuum, sorry, speed of light in vacuum, is transductible into the constant C. This affirmation of a transductivity goes quite further than the discovery of a simple equality between two measures, an equality that could arise from an arbitrary choice of units. It supposes the physical identity of the measured phenomenon an identity that can be obscured by the difference of the aspects according to the particular values chosen in the vast known range. Let us indeed note that here we are not dealing with a generalization or a subsumption. Visible light is not a particular species, quote-unquote, of electromagnetic perturbations since the, quote-unquote, specific difference that we could attempt to invoke to distinguish this species from its nearest genus namely the wavelength of its propagation in a vacuum, or more precisely, the superior and inferior limits of the measure of this wavelength, involves the definition of the nearest genus itself, an electromagnetic field that would have no wavelength of propagation in a vacuum is inconceivable. As an electromagnetic field that is already quote-unquote specified and can only exist and be thought as gamma ray, x-ray, ultraviolet ray, visible light, infrared ray, and Hertzian wave. 
the number of species or subspecies that could be discovered in a domain of transductivity like electromagnetic waves has the power of the continuous. From long Hertzian waves to the most penetrating gamma rays, there is an infinity of electromagnetic fields of different wavelengths, each of whose properties vary with these wavelengths. Between red visible light and violet visible light, there is an infinity of wavelengths. We can differentiate violet light as much as we like, then the criteria of subspecies are hom homogeneous with respect to the criteria of the species, and the criterion of a species is contained in the comprehension of the nearest genus. Discontinuities, the limits of pseudospecies, can only be introduced due to vital or technical usages. We can talk about red and violet, and we can talk about we can even talk about visible light, but this is because we introduce the consideration of a living being that perceives. The apparent discontinuity does not stem from the known scale, scale of electromagnetic wavelengths, but from the rapport between the physiological functions of a living being and those in these wavelengths. An eye without a crystalline lens perceives an ultraviolet more remote than what the normal eye perceives as the glimpse of a gray glimmer. The bee perceives ultraviolet. The Greeks and Romans did not divide up the visible spectrum like we do, and it seems that human perception has been modified towards the extremity of the spectrum situated uh, on the side of short wavelengths, as the usage of the adjective heliporphoros in Homeric writings reveals. We distinguish among several colors where the companions of Ulysses saw only one, something that persists today in certain peoples of the Far East. So this, to me, like, maybe an obvious point, but, you know, this recalls that in the discussion of uh, the, the brick-making example, when he was talking about hylomorphism, um, the sort of relative hexiety of the brick, um, and even the possibility of, of conceiving of such a technical operation hylomorphically is only relative to uh, the, I guess, the the beings that are capable of, uh, you know, ordering the brick making and uh, on the side of the owner and actually creating the bricks on the on the part of the artisan. Yeah, I think the connection here is that in both cases, um, we have these conceptual categories that have a, a social origin. Um, and so they aren't, um, they don't grasp a, a real distinction in, uh, in the entities in question. They, they sort of uh, project this distinction onto, onto the entities. Um, so in the case of light uh, or in the case of electromagnetic radiation, we can divide up the spectrum into different categories um, but these, these categories have a, a social reality rather than a, a physical reality. Um, so there's no, um, there's no sense in which, uh, um, visible light and electrum, um, and say, uh, uh, um, ultra, uh, ultraviolet light are, um, separate categories in, in physical reality. There's a, a continuum, a continuous spectrum from one to the other, um, and there's no uh, there's no such thing in physical reality as an electromagnetic uh, wave, which would not have a frequency, which could then be uh, sort of the which would could then be specified um, uh, uh, as the specific difference. So, so the, the whole genus species categorization 
doesn't work uh, when you're dealing with the electromagnetic spectrum. And then there's this bit about um, the suggestion here that um, uh, Greek and uh, Greeks and Romans, ancient Greeks and Romans, didn't uh, divide up the spectrum in the same way as uh, as we do today. Um, so this is a sort of a controversial point in um, uh, classics um, about the the meaning of the color terms. Um, it seems like Greek color terms, at least, uh, they have to do with the brightness of colors rather than the um, um, the the hue, which is what our color terms are are more based on. Um, so that means that you can um, use the same color term for different objects that uh, we would classify as having different colors. Um, and so the example that um, someone don't use it here is the haliporphyros, um, which is um, uh, sea purple or something like that. Uh, um, and uh, and so this is what Homer uses this term for the color of the sea. He, he, calls the sea the, the color of purple. Um, yeah, and there's this expression, wine dark seas. So wine and the ocean apparently were uh, classified under the same color uh, category. Um, and so Simono seems to be suggesting here that this has to do with um, a difference of perception, uh, but that's sort of a, um, a second step of the inference, which is not necessarily valid. Um, so we the first, the first step would be recognizing that the color categories that that uh, were used in ancient Greece are different than <clears throat> than today's color categories in in English, for example. Um, and then the second step would be to say that that represents a difference of perception, but um, that's not it's not obvious that that's uh, a valid step to make. Um, it's it's quite possible that. Um, or it's at least possible to imagine that uh, people with the same basic perceptual apparatus would still use uh, different color terms. Um, and uh, I know this is a, a sort of controversial point um, uh, within linguistics about um, the, to what extent differences of color terms um, uh, correspond to differences of perception. And uh, yeah, so Angus has posted um, the Welsh color terms, which um, have a, a a different overlap with uh, with English, so that um, if I remember correctly, it's uh, uh, plants and the ocean have the same color, um, and then um, uh, what is the other one? I forget what the other one is, but anyway, uh, so we would use, of course, green and, and blue for for plants and the ocean, but in in Welsh they have the same color term, and then there's a, a further color term for other types of, of what we would call green. Um, and, uh, yeah, a number of languages, there's also some universals about, uh, the order in which color terms appear. So if a language has, uh, only two color terms, then, uh, they will be more or less equivalent to light and dark. And then if there's a third one, then it the, the, uh, the system will be white, black, and red. Uh, and anyway, so as you add more color terms, there's a, a sort of determinate progression. Like there's no language that has only words for yellow and blue, for example. Um, um, anyway, that's sort of an aside, but uh, it, it's more complicated than uh, Simon Don is presenting it here is, is sort of the takeaway of that, 
um, discussion. And what I find interesting in this discussion of transduction, uh, I guess it's the Deleuzian point. Deleuze makes a lot of this uh, notion of, um, what do you call it? Uh, uh, univocity. Univocity of being. And uh, I mean, Simondon hasn't named it as such, but uh, the thing that's jumping out at me is how uh, transduction can serve uh, to account for physical processes, but also relations of knowledge, right? So I think it's come up in two ways so far. I mean, obviously, all of these physical processes are being described, but he's also using it to talk about the relation between theories or between disciplines of thought, right? So here when he's discussing um, the theory of light, and most of that is way over my head, but there was a bit about uh, the way these uh, separate fields are becoming unified. And it sounded like uh, the unification is accomplished through transduction. Uh, right, so I'm reading here, the constant C, which was discovered based on considerations, contemplating the conservation of energy is electricity, is transductible into the measure of the speed of light in vacuum. Just as the speed of light in vacuum is transductible into the constant C. Um, and so it seems like there is a moment in which you know, um, we when talking about physical reality versus talking about theory, you know, that distinction seems to, uh, I don't know, I want to say collapse. It's not really quite that, but transduction is this, is the, is, the, um, to be, is, is, is used to explain both, you know, our theoretical productions as well as things themselves, right? That unity of thought and being. Um, and, and another place where it showed up earlier, it's just a mention where he uh, talked about ethics. There's just a sentence or two, I think. And he said something like, you know, uh, it sounded like the, his views on epistemology are kind of going to transduce into the discipline of ethics and the way, the way we're to think of ethics. And I think, uh, technics was, was another thing he mentioned. Um, and so it's very interesting how you know, the way things are, I guess, I guess it's, it's a physics, right? A kind of transductive physics is going to encompass thought and theoretical production as well. Um, and, uh, that's, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, he, he's suggested it, or he's, um, said a couple of times, um, that we have to uh, look at knowledge as um, uh, as a, a relation in the proper sense of the term, in, in his technical sense, um, so that um, it has to do with the process of individuation of the totality in which the subject and object are um, appearing. Um, so it's not uh, knowledge is not just uh, some sort of external uh, rapport in which um, the subject and the object coincide in some way or something like that. 
um, it's, uh, it's an actual process of individuation so that knowledge uh, undergoes the same kind of process of individuation as physical reality does. Um, and, and so that um, when we, our knowledge of individuation is an individuation in knowledge, um, which I think is a, um, a pretty interesting um, way of sort of uh, making sense of how we're able to have this knowledge of individuation. Okay, so let's uh, keep reading um, and I'll read the next bit. Several technical necessities have led to dividing up Hertzian waves into bands of 9,000 Hertz called channels because these bandwidths correspond to a useful compromise between the necessities of a transmission that is suitably faithful in its modulation of amplification and the total number of transmitters distinct and functioning that are simultaneously able to, to be received with a sufficient selectivity. If we can distinguish between long, medium, small, small, short, and very short waves, this is due to the noticeably important differences between the apparatuses capable of producing them or capable of receiving them and the conditions of propagation that characterize them. Thus, all things considered, this distinction is made in accordance with the characteristics belonging not to these electromagnetic fields taken in themselves, but in accordance with the limits within which their rapports vary with the technical conditions of production or the atmospheric and stratospheric conditions of propagation. In this sense, Waves that range from 20,000 meters to 800 meters will be called long Hertzian waves because they always reflect off one of the kinetically heavy side layers, which present for them an index of negative refraction, something that makes it so that they can undergo a veritable metallic reflection off the first ionized layer that they encounter, a phenomenon highlighted by ionospheric sounding discovered by Sir Edward Appleton. Waves will be called medium when they range from 800 to 80 meters and when they penetrate more deeply into the kinetically heavy side layer thus reflecting well by night, but partially absorbed by day due to the variations in the ionized layer, whose altitude and degree of ionization is relative to the variable altitude and activity of the sun. These differences therefore arise from a rapport between Hertzian waves and something other than themselves. For example, the ionized layer of the upper atmosphere or the practical means of producing or conveying them, either via simple electronic tubes or velocity modulation tubes or a coaxial line or a waveguide. These distinctions are never founded on the very nature of the phenomenon considered. They do not ex exist, properly speaking, according to physical science, but only according to techniques. This is why there seems to be a dependence of all these technical distinctions with respect to each type of technology. The constructors of ele electronic apparatuses separate waves whose length is greater than 10 meters from those that are shorter, because below 10 meters, the extreme brevity of time to transmit electrons between a cathode and an anode forces the constructors to predict special assemblages in the internal architecture of an electronic tube. Furthermore, the service de prévision ionosphérique, whose goal is to ensure the best performance for transmissions, does not establish the same distinctions. Finally, a certain number of industrial concepts have been created, since they arose from a more or less precarious concordance between the special domains of all the types of technologies organized in the same industry. These industrial concepts end up becoming commercial and administrative, increasingly losing their scientific nature since they are relative to a usage and no longer have anything but a pragmatic sense. Here a complete specificity is constituted via the encounter, which has become habitual and collective, i.e. recognized by law or by an administrative regulation of the limits of the specialty of numerous types of technology. And this specificity is deprived of scientific signification and yet possesses an essentially qualitative, emotive, and institutional psychosocial value. In this sense, the domain of television is specific. 
It only corresponds to a concrete being through its psychosocial existence. This institution has its technicians who are animated by Nesprit de corps, its artists, its budget, its friends, and its enemies, in the same way it has its band of frequencies. Yet there is a natural, uh, sorry, yet there is a mutual contamination of their own different characteristics following a delimitation that results from a competition with other institutions. The determination of television's wavelengths is the result of an expulsion outside the domain already occupied by radio broadcasting and the telecommunications of a technology that is new and quite cumbersome due to the bandwidth necessary for the richness of the quantity of information to be transmitted per unit of time. Constrained to a very high frequency range, the transmission of television is reduced to an initial domain of specialty relative to the properties of the ionospheric layers. The propagation of television waves is straightforward in a direct line from the transmitting antenna to the receiving antenna because there will be no reflection off the Kennelly heaviside layer. This means that the transmitter and the receiver will have to belong to the same national spirit, i.e. to a dense and homogeneous conglomeration. Since it can't be required to convey a veritable information very far, television arrives in a population center that is already saturated with information and artistic spectacles. It can therefore merely become a means of distraction. Furthermore, this constraint and limitation of the parameters of television broadcasts to extremely high frequencies, which frees up the field for a large bandwidth of transmission and has met with the quality of a capital's urban provincialism, its first consequence, forces the transmitted image down a path of research for a perfection oriented toward technical quality, i.e. toward the adoption of high definition. Favored by the initial circumstances, this adoption of a certain code of values creates a normativity that reinforces the conditions that have contributed to it and that legitimizes them after the fact. High definition will make the correct transmission at a even more haphazard. Broadcasting in high definition will lead to the production of expensive apparatuses, and those who build them will have to be that much more careful in how they produce and sell this technology. High definition technology resides at the extreme limit of what can be commercialized and requires an enormous amount of direct advertising to a specific public wealthy enough to purchase, to purchase, I think there's a word missing here, purchase age, living in an urban area rather than a rural one. This then leads to a psychosocial morphology and dynamic that summarize and stabilize the concept and institution of television. From the capital toward the large populated centers, guided bundles modulated by frequency and on decimetric waves are sent forth to transmit programs of distraction over the countryside and towns of a secondary order, which are powerless to participate in this star-shaped network radiating from Paris. The veritable limits of the concept of television are thus psychosocial. They are defined by the closure of a cycle of recurrent causalities that create a type of psychosocial interior milieu endowed with homeostasis due to a certain internal regulation by the assimilation and, and disassimilation of technologies, procedures, and artists who are recruited through commandeering and bound together by a mechanism of self-defense comparable to that of various closed societies. So here he is developing further this theme of um, the social reality of these categories rather than physical reality uh, of, uh, of different categories. So the, the category of television waves um, is the specific example that he, he brings up here. And so because, um, because television uh, is um, uh, confined to these high this high frequency um, portion of the spectrum uh, compared to radio transmissions, um, uh, it has these particular physical properties that make it, um, uh, which make that that spectrum, that portion of the spectrum, unsuitable for long distance transmission. Um, 
And because of that, you end up with certain social determinations that result from uh, the technical necessity of the, the process. So there's a sort of back and forth between uh, a social category uh, or a, a, a legal category that assigns um, a certain portion of the electromagnetic spectrum to television, the existed television. And then there's the technical necessity uh, in, uh, in that portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. And then you have further social determinations that are consequences of technical necessity. Um, so because television, because these in that portion of the spectrum are not um, easily transmissible, uh, a medium of information primarily, uh, where uh, written, uh, in comparison with television. Uh, and then so you also end up with this sort of network structure where um, you have one national center uh, like Paris for France, um, and then you have sort of regional centers that uh, uh, re-transmit uh, the, the television signal. And so you use uh, centers, um, and, and each center transmits only to a, a small area surrounding uh, itself. Okay, so let's go on to, uh, let's keep reading this long paragraph on uh, television, if someone else would like to read. Particular self-justifying myths are put forth. The research of the sharpness of the image is proclaimed to be more valuable than the research of color attempted by other nations. And in order for this research to justify itself, the distinctive traits of the French people are invoked, who are enamored with clarity and precision and detest the poor taste of color prints, considered only to be suitable for primitives or children. Logical contradiction is accepted here, for this thought is guided by effective and emotive themes. The superiority of sharpness over color is therefore invoked in the name of technical perfection, whereas a simple calculation of the quantity of information required to transmit a colored image and a colorless image, and an examination of the degree of complication of the apparatuses used in both cases lead to the inverse result. Thus, the television wave can be thought in two absolutely different ways. If we accept a mode of thought founded on the validity of the species genus schema, the television wave becomes a species of the electromagnetic wave genus, whose specific difference is not its wavelength, but its belonging to the institution that is television. What will create this attribution and found this link of participation will then be an administrative decree, Hague Conference, or Hague Conference. On the contrary, according to a transductive thought, the wavelengths of television will end up being inserted between numer numerical limits that do not correspond to clear physical characteristics. They will not be a species, but a section, a greater or lesser band of a domain of transductivity, that of electromagnetic waves. An important consequence, one that is perhaps paramount for epistemology, of this difference between a transductive thought and a thought that proceeds through genera, species, relations of inclusion, is that generic characteristics are not transductible. In this sense, there are currently two bands in France exploited by television, one towards 46 megahertz and the other towards 180 megahertz. Between these two bands, aviation and police have particular or shared bands. We cannot infer from a property characterizing television waves in the low band the existence of the same property in the high band. 
The common link of subsumption does not create any veritable mutual physical. The only link is this domain's administrative property. This is why this relation of participation creates a certain regime of property with possible cessations or sessions and resumptions. As if it were a matter of a terrain that does not bear its proprietor's imprint, but creates a bond of obligation or fealty in the eventual developer. French television, which is currently unable to exploit the full width of its low band, has provided a certain extension of this band toward 42.7 MHz to the Scotus de France, who use it for telephone and telegraph transmissions. This subband has the characteristics of an object with a precarious entitlement, since it can be immediately retracted without advance warning. Due to its physical characteristics, it has properties transductible into these those of bands with wavelengths that are immediately superior or inferior. Thus, we have the appearance of a type of physical reality that can be called the domain or field of transductivity, is distinct from every psychosocial being, is knowable through concepts, and can justify the usage of thought that employs notions of genus and species through their application on the relation of participation, which may or may not solidify into a relation of property or Veritable transductive thought utilizes reasoning through analogy, but never reasoning through resemblance, i.e. affective and emotive partial identity. It would be dangerous or misleading to use the same word domain here, for the relation of possession seems to lead back thought through participation. It would be necessary to say track or path of transductivity divided into bands or and subbands of transductivity instead of species and subspecies. Transductive thought establishes a topology of the real, and this topology is not identical to a hi hierarchization of genera and species. Right, so this is basically continuing on the same point as the last um, passage that we read. Um, so again, there's this. Uh, division of the electromagnetic spectrum into different um, uh, sub-bands uh, bands and sub-bands, um, but this has to, is only relative to particular um, uh, psychosocial usages. Um, it has no physical reality, um, so that um, I think um, as, as Angus says, there's, there's something like a, a denigration of the psychosocial um, in the sense that um, uh, it has only a, a relative validity, um, whereas when you grasp the uh, physical reality using transductive thinking, it has an absolute validity. It's not tied to a particular psychosocial context. Um, so grasping... Uh, so-called television waves as uh, a particular band of the electromagnetic spectrum uh, is not relative to a particular psychosocial context, whereas grasping them as television waves uh, is relative uh, to that psychosocial context. Um, and uh, in, the, he, in the example he, he points to here, or, or the particular, um, what, what sort of shows this most clearly is the way that uh, television uh, is granted these two distinct bands in France uh, at this time, so that um, 
there's there's one lower band of uh, television channels, uh, and then there's an intermediate band that's used by uh, police and something else I forget. Um, uh, uh, and then above that, there's another band of television uh, channels, um, so that there's no uh, physical property that's common to the the two bands of of uh, uh, television channels um, in distinction to the the radio transmission that is in between them. Uh, so it's a purely um, psychosocial reality rather than uh, something that has any sort of physical meaning. Okay, so I'll read the, the next couple paragraphs so that'll take us to the end of the... Oh, we're almost at the end. Uh, hmm, yeah, I'll read them and then maybe we'll have to come back to them next time. Okay. Uh, to determine the criteria of the physical individual, it therefore does not require us to resort to an examination of the relations between genus and species, and then between the species and the individual. The play of transductive thought whose fruitfulness we have witnessed in the discovery of an immense domain of transductivity prohibits the usage of this method. However, if the transductive method is necessary, nothing guarantees that it is sufficient and allows for the apprehension of the physical individual. It could be that the physical individual can only be grasped at the point of encounter and compatibility of two opposite and complementary methods, both of which are incapable of grasping this reality on their own. An electromagnetic wave cannot be considered as a physical individual, since it has no consistency or limit of its own to characterize it. The pure continuum of the transductive domain does not allow us to conceive the individual. Obtained at the end of a deductive process based on energetic considerations, it is perfectly rational and can be fully compenetrated com by the geometrical intellection of figure and movement. But it does not provide a criterion for isolating this continuous virtuality. It cannot provide the concrete of complete existence. It alone cannot lead to the grasping of the physical individual. Nevertheless, if the physical individual can only be grasped by two complementary types of knowledge, the critical question will be that of the validity of the relation between these two types of knowledge and that of its ontological foundation in the individual itself. Yeah, so we're just about out of time. Um, so I think we'll have to come back to these last couple paragraphs. But um, he's pointing here towards the, um, the, the notion that there's more to the, the thought of the individual than this uh, transductive uh, thinking that is uh, resulting at the end of a, a deductive process. So uh, in the way that uh, an electromagnetic wave is not an individual, so um, this thinking that is adequate for grasping the reality of ele electromagnetic radiation um, is not necessarily adequate to, for grasping um, uh, the reality of an individual. Um, and so we'll see in the next section, uh, or the next subsection, sorry, there's going to be discussion of the uh, inductive process of thought and uh, the transduction that leads out of it. Um, and uh, we're going to have to join the two together in some way to be able to have a, a thinking of the individual. Okay, so thank you everyone for uh, joining in and for uh, your comments and uh, questions and so on. And uh, see you all next week.